Lord, that you will uh, grow our faith. Remind us of your greatness. Remind us that we are new creatures in you. Remind us that we are forgiven, that you have cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. Lord, may you remind us that you have come to save the lost, to redeem us, to make us new. And we praise you, we honor you, Lord, as we have uh, put songs in our hearts and out of our mouth, Lord, proclaimed that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, friends, meet somebody you don't know. Shake a hand. Give them a hug this morning. Come on in if you are in the foyer or outside. Come on in if you are still next door for our fellowship time. You are so late. You need to come back over and stop eating and come on into the sanctuary. Come on in, folks. We got a little bit of a full house. My name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church, and I'm here to welcome you. So welcome. I will take that as... Oh, welcome, Amy. So glad you're here. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. All right, still coming in. I know, I don't know where there are seats. Two, right here. Oh, you, you can, you can sit in the coffee shop. All right, so this morning, if you are brand new or visiting from a far off land, you can get information about our church in that pocket in front of you. There's also a information about the book of Ephesians, which is the book we are in. And we have a gift for you as well uh, in our foyer when you exit today. If you remember, um, and you're not too chatty, then I will be there to hand you your gift. Also, we have our offering boxes. Yeah, that's what they're called. Offering boxes in the back of our sanctuary. Again, if you're visiting, those envelopes are in front of you, but we don't pass anything here. You can also go in that back area and drop off in our offering boxes, and we thank you very much for contributing to our mission here at Sierra Bible Church. Um, I want to let you know about a few things happening. Uh, this coming week, tomorrow, Monday, we have our Grief Share group. We've been talking about this. It is meeting tomorrow for the first time in the evening. If you are registered for that, we want to have you there. If you're not registered, and it's like 10 minutes before the group, and you're like, oh my gosh, I really need this group, you can still come, and I want you to be there. Don't let the app you know, confuse you. So we'd love for you to register, but if you don't get to it and you just want to show up, we still want you there. Uh, and that grief share group is tomorrow night. A few days from there, we have our worship and prayer uh, evening, and that's Thursday nights. And that is something that took a break over the summer, but we are back. And so 6 p.m. Thursday nights here, worship and prayer. Did you guys write that? No one's writing any of these things down. So I'm just going to assume you're going to remember everything that I'm saying. That's fine. Uh, also, our women's conference is coming up in just a couple weeks. I feel like we, yes, go women. And so we uh, started talking about this. I feel like it was a while back, but now it's coming up. And so this is our women's conference in lieu of a retreat this year. And so you get to come here Friday evening, hear some worship, connect with women, go home, sleep in your own beds, and then come back Saturday uh, and participate in the events going on Saturday. And again, that's here at this building. And so that's our women's conference. If you do want to participate in an overnight trip and you're in junior high, you can. This Friday night, we're having a junior high all-nighter. It's as fun as it sounds. I won't be there. 
but other people will, and it'll be great, and it'll be a memorable experience for all those involved. And so, <laughs> why are you laughing? It's true. So, junior high, all-nighter, if you don't know about it, and you want to, you want to talk to Pastor Caleb, who is in the back. He's also back there to collect all the junior hires that might be participating in junior high service today. So there, you're free, you may go. Scurry off. Look at all of these growing individuals. All right. All right, last up, I do want to invite a couple of ladies up here. We have our women's mentoring program that's kicking off at the end of the month. And I have some ladies that are going to tell you about it, I think. Oh, there you are. Okay. I am Tracy Cuneo, and this is Margaret Rupert. Um, Titus 2, in the Bible, Titus 2, 3 through 5 tells us that we are, as older women, we are to walk alongside and encourage younger women. But keep in mind, 20-year-olds are even older than high schoolers, so everyone's, pretty much every woman is an older woman to somebody. Um, the, the vision of Titus 2 program is that no woman would have to walk through valleys alone, that they would always have somebody to lean on. And uh, there's two parts to it. One is one-on-one -on -one mentoring that we can set you up with a, somebody if you want to be mentored by somebody or want somebody to walk alongside or want somebody to be accountable to grow. Contact the church, and we can perfectly set you up with somebody. And then the other part is a small, we're small groups, and they meet at a day and time that works for you. The group decides on that, and that you decide on the topics that you'll cover, like um, prayer and gratitude through trials, uh, marriage, singleness, things like that. Um, and then we just we just encourage each other. It's very much about a very transparent relationship with each other. There was a woman um, a few years ago, and she said she was in her mid-40s, and she said it was the first time she felt like she could open up to people, which I think is a testimony to the, the program. But Mar I want Margaret to just tell a little bit about her experience. She's someone who just got great mentoring from the other women in the group and then now feels confident to mentor just because of how the program encourages you to mentor others. Um, yeah, so like she said, my name's Margaret. Um, I have five kids. Uh, she wanted me to say a few things about Titus too. Um, I'm not doing it this year, but I have done it before. Um, I just wanted to share that I have really struggled and still struggle with wanting to become the kind of person that Titus 2 talks about uh, before I get too into church. <laughs> I think that it's very common for us to kind of want to clean ourselves up before being vulnerable, but it doesn't work like that. Um, relationships can hurt us and we can hurt others, but the truth is that relationship is also where we can find healing. Um, I didn't want to get too into church also because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I didn't want to proclaim Christ as Lord and still struggle as much as I do. Uh, I was scared that to share my struggles would discredit Christ's power. But Titus 2 also says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's training. It's an ongoing process. The Lord is not done with me. And I uh, really need the relationships of other believing women as I walk this path of sanctification. I have found a lot of grace from the women here in the church, more than I thought. And uh, if you're thinking about it, just force yourself to do it, even if it's outside of your comfort zone. I think it'll be worth it. Um, whether you have kids or you don't, or uh, you're single, or you're an older, wiser lady, um, we're all sisters in Christ. And uh, can learn a lot and um, grow with each other and the Titus 2 groups are a great place to do it so jump in uh, we try to read a book a month roughly and for some of us we would slide in never quite accomplishing that but half a book is better than no book <laughs> and uh, it was a great experience so you should get in there <laughs> so uh, I'll be You can sign up online, or and I'll be out back at the info booth if you have any questions. And September 28th is our first meeting. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sierra Bible Church. I pray that your morning was good. I was at the fellowship time 
like some of you were earlier, and I probably ate a little too many of the peanut butter chocolate balls. Uh, those were really tasty. So if you missed out on that, it's probably my fault. <clears throat> um, I was thinking about the junior high lock-in as Amy was uh, discussing it, and it reminded me a little bit of uh, my experience when I began youth ministry here so many years ago. I actually was the youth pastor here for eight years before being in the position that I'm in now. And uh, there, we did our very first uh, lock-in, and I had a parent come up to me, and, and I trusted this particular parent because they were a parent. I wasn't a parent yet. And so uh, it, it, I kind of leaned into those other parents on what, what would be considered wise and what would be considered unwise for something like a junior high lock-in. So she came to me and she said, I, I want to bless the, the lock-in with a gift. And I was like, okay, let's do it. What is it? And she said, I'll go get all the kids' monsters. And I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> do you remember this, Courtney? Yeah. Infamous memory here. Uh, and and uh, I, I just wasn't thinking it through. <laughs> that was when monsters were first kind of on the scene, too. One, the first lesson I learned is you should monitor, if you give monsters to kids at all, you should monitor how many they drink in one evening. The second lesson I learned is parents really don't like it when you give their kids something to drink that they don't want them to drink. So... Uh, if you want to give Caleb monsters for this event, I'm totally fine. I think it'd be a great experience for him. Uh, I think he could learn a lot from that, uh, some humility. Um, I'm completely joking, by the way. There'll be no caffeine that I'm aware of, okay? Um, but I will take a swig of my white lightning here, so. <laughs> it's just water, I promise. Hey, um, <laughs> we are in the book of Ephesians, uh, as Amy mentioned, and... Uh, uh, I had attempted to uh, initially, in one message, tackle chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. This will be the third message in that segment, uh, and we are going to actually spend even a little bit more time next week in the same segment. Uh, so if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 5. If you don't have a Bible and you want to borrow one, that's what these lovely gentlemen are doing here. They're handing out Bibles, so if you want to keep it, great. If you want to borrow it, that's fine too. Just keep your hand raised, and they'll make sure uh, that you can read along. It is our custom here to be biblically-based. Uh, and to teach out of the Bible, but with an emphasis, of course, as always, on the gospel. Uh, and so I, I really appreciated what Margaret said. Very proud of Margaret and seeing her development and growth in the Lord over the years. But she said something really, I don't know if you picked up on it, but she, she had a feeling that when she was younger that she was going to need to, to kind of clean herself up before getting involved in church and getting involved in community. And she then said, it doesn't work out that way, uh, which is really true. And so what we've tried to, to share with you uh, through this particular book, I've been emphasizing it every single week, I think. The first half of this book is positional chapters. They're chapters on us understanding that you are saved by God's grace. You're not saved because of something you've done, and you don't lose your salvation because of something you've done either. You're saved by God's great grace and love. And that's the work of the cross. Uh, and then because of that great work, God calls us to live a particular way. Uh, and that's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 are. They're, they're now practical chapters. They're, they're chapters, what, what we call maybe precepts. Uh, maybe you could call them mandates. Some might call them commandments. I think it's a strong word, but they could. Uh, and, and really what, he, what Paul's trying to say is because of this great grace that you've experienced, because of this transformative power of the gospel, that, that God has called us to live a particular way. Uh, one of the things I tell my kids all the time on a pretty regular basis is that God has created, has created life with what we would call like, a, like cosmic truths, truths that run within the fabric of time and space that are inevitable. They're unescapable, right? Uh, and what I mean by that as an example, just as in nature itself, we know the sun is going to rise every day and the moon is going to pop up every day. There's night and there's day. We know without a shadow of a doubt winter is coming. I don't know if you're ready, but it is coming. So you are already, if you're like me, you're thinking about the things you need to do to prepare for winter. It's inevitable. But likewise, and this is the part I share with my kids, there is a way of life that leads to the flourishing of humanity. There's a way of life that leads to the flourishing of mankind. There, there, there's a way that we live where our marriages go better than they would without those particular truths, where our parenting goes better without those particular truths. And that's why you can actually have people, you hear this sometimes, hey, I know non-Christians who are happier and more successful than Christians. Why is that? 
Well, because they're better at living those fabric truths of love and unconditional forgiveness, sometimes without the gospel, but they don't have the eternal relationship with Christ. Uh, And so this morning, we're gonna dive more into that and we're gonna talk a a little bit more about the identity that we have, which is of course the major theme of Ephesians uh, and and the kind of thankful hearts we should have. I shared a little bit on that last week, but there's more to be said. Uh, And then uh, I was attempting to uh, share what it means to have discernment to what it means to please the Lord, which is in the text as well, but we're not gonna get there this morning because we're gonna be in Ephesians for 10 years. So with that said, if you are part of our church, you know we have a custom because we love God's word. We hold it dear to our hearts. We believe that it has a Holy Spirit power. Would you stand with me as we read from the text of chapter five, if you're able to this morning, please. Verses one through 14. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. That, that word out of place literally means it's broken. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this is our hope, Lord, that you would awaken us. Awaken our spirits to your love, your grace, your compassion. Awaken us to your righteousness. Make us alive and shine on us, Lord that we would reflect your beauty and who you are. And we trust you for that now, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. The focus at first that I want us to take a look at is I want us to just take a look for a moment as it tells us, first of all, there's this instruction, right? We're, We're to be imitators, and several weeks ago, we talked about how we imitate, but we imitate as, as beloved children. There, inside of that little piece of text, as it then goes into verse 2 and tells us to walk in love as Christ loved us, there is the gospel. We are to imitate God. As believers, we're to do the things that God does, to act merciful and to love and to forgive, all of these great commandments that exist in Scripture. But, but we notice here in the text, it tells us, like beloved children, So there is a emphasis on the love that you have from God, but also an emphasis on the fact that as you imitate God, you will imitate him as a child, which means that you are not going to do this perfect. You will stumble along the way. You will make mistakes. But because of the grace of God, we can continue to walk in this love as Christ loved us. This is what gives us this ability is his sacrifice. And then there's this kind of negative hard speech that's unpopular to share within our culture. There's these words of sexual immorality and purity, which is covetousness. And if you remember, covetousness is an insatiable desire for more. It's wanting more of, getting more of whatever that thing is. I mean, in America, we are known, our our, our whole economy basically runs on consumerism. It's one of the major things that, that even in a church community, we have to combat. That as you come to church, you don't come just to consume, you come to participate. That's why we all sing. Because we don't want to just consume. We all sing because we want to participate. Uh, Scripture tells us to sing psalms and hymns to one another. Something happens when your voice goes off into the distance, echoes off of the wall, and goes into another believer's ears. It's an encouragement to feed off of one another's praise. And yet, this insatiable desire, he tells us, is, in the text, it's idolatry. It's, It's false worship. It's to worship something other than God. And so he tells us, 
a major emphasis of something, something that we have to understand. It's right there in verse 3. And I mentioned it in my introduction. These kind of things, these, this kind of immorality, this kind of negative acting, not only is not good for the flourishing of humanity or for your soul, but it's not fitting for who? The saints. This, this, this is an instruction on who you are and why you live or why you should live the way that God has called us to. He says, this kind of living is not proper in your identity. It's not proper for who you are. 40 times Paul will tell us that those who are in Christ, those who have faith in God, that is Jesus our Lord, 40 times at least he'll say, you are saints, holy ones, cleansed ones. That's what it literally means. You are a holy one that has been cleansed. Did you know that? This is where, just because I know there's several, um, we call them recovering Catholics in the room. Any recovering Catholics in the room? Yeah, so (laughs) Tom's got his arm way up. I'm a way recovering Catholic. Now, within Catholicism, what you have to understand is in Catholicism, they believe in sainthood as well. But in Catholicism, in order to be a saint, there is a set of rules a set of, of criteria one has to meet in order to be a saint. A few of those criteria, first of all, is you have to have verified miracles. Okay, You have to have done, I can't remember if it's two or three, I think it's three. But you have to have performed certain miracles. They have to be verified. The church has to say that you are a saint. And, and the real bummer about the, one of the criterias is you have to die. In order to be a saint, not only have you had to have done something really great, not only does the church have to have the authority to say that you are a saint, but then you have to die. And within Catholicism, where they've gone wrong is they've said, listen, the, the church, the church and the church fathers are the ones who wrote scripture. And so scripture serves the church. The church has authority over scripture. This is why the Pope is considered uh, an infallible uh, individual. He has the same, if not more, authority than Scripture. The Pope can actually decide, and it can change from Pope to Pope, what sin is and what sin is not. But thank God for Martin Luther, who came on the scene in the 1500s and said, no, 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 the Pope doesn't have that kind of authority, but all popes, all pastors, all leaders, all people sit under the authority of God's Word. And what God's word teaches in regards to sainthood is that you and I, if you believe in Christ Jesus, your identity is that of a saint. That is who you are. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 1 says. Just a few chapters earlier, right? I know it's been two years since we've been in chapter 1. But in chapter 1 verse 4, if you remember, what does he say in that particular text? Paul says in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 4, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The language here is important, and I want to make emphasis of it. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Let me ask you all a question. Let's be really honest with one another. How many good things did you do before the foundation of the world? Can't remember, yeah. It's a long time ago. How, How many of you have done terrible things before the foundation of the world. The idea of the text here is to share with you that God's love, his affection towards humanity, his affection towards those that would be his children, have been set in place not because of anything that you've done. Your sainthood is not based on your actions. It's not, it's not based on what we would say the exterior, but rather the interior, who God has made you, who God has cleansed you. L- listen to what he says. Again, I hope you're looking at Ephesians 1-4 with me even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What good news it is that we are holy and blameless before Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9 says it like this, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. <laughs> How terrible would it be if you had to say, I was saved, I became saved because of something I did. Listen to what he says in Timothy. Hear the words, listen to them carefully. He has called us to a a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. His own, he saved you for his own purpose. 
He saved you because of his own grace, right? You don't have to stand before God and say, I'm saved because of, but rather I'm saved because Jesus said so. You're saved by the authority of Christ, the authority of his work, the authority of his atonement on the cross, the authority of his resurrection, all declare to you that you are a saint, not because of verifiable miracles, not because you are dead, not because of a pope or a pastor, but because of the great declaration of God that he has called you a cleansed holy one. Amen. I like how I encourage you to do that. See, makes me feel good about myself. Romans 15, 15 says, but on, I'm gonna skip that one here for a moment. But I just want you to see here the emphasis of identity of your sainthood and that it's founded on the offering of verse two. It's all foundational there. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, he has declared you a saint. And because you are a holy one, that's what you are. Not because of what you've done, not because of what you're doing, not because you're here, not because you tithe, not because you serve, but because of the cross. Your faith in Christ saves you. It's faith and faith alone. Now, because of that sainthood, he tells us that these things, which we've shared in weeks previous, these things, impurity, covetousness, sexual immorality, they shouldn't be named among us because they're not proper. They don't fit. That's what that means. These things are not proper for the saints. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when, when Brad Beers did his whole jacket thing, the put on and the take off, right? What he's saying is the, this kind of clothing, this kind of life doesn't fit the believer. Uh, what's, the, uh, what's the bit where the, uh, the, the, the Farley movie, fat guy in a little coat, you remember that? Fat guy in a little coat. You remember? Some of you don't remember the Saturday Night Live reference. It's okay. Chris Farley, hilarious guy. It's the same thing. These kind of things don't fit saints. It's the wrong size clothing. It should feel awkward as a Christian with the spirit in you. When these things are around you, whether on television or radio or any other place, it, will, it should feel awkward. It should feel weird. Because notice... I've been sharing the grace of God. It's important that you don't carry around guilt and shame, but guilt and shame, sometimes you can mistake in that and, and think, well, I have guilt and shame when in reality, it's just the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Convicting you that this clothing doesn't fit. Conviction, a conviction is supposed to draw you to Jesus. Condemnation shrinks your identity. It shrinks who you are as an individual. It drives you away from community. It keeps you from other believers. Condemnation is horrible. And that's why scripture says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for you. You aren't to carry guilt. You aren't to carry shame. But every now and then, as a good father disciplines his son, this is out of Hebrews, you will be convicted. And that's just, again, it's the weirdness of the coat. It doesn't fit me. It's not proper. It's not fitting for those who are saints. And one of the things we didn't emphasize last week that needs emphasis this week is he tells us specifically one of the things that is not fitting in verse 4 that I bypassed in the previous messages. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Another way to say this is it's not fitting or proper for saints to partake in corrupt speech. Now I'm going to say something that's going to be controversial for some. And for some of you, uh, you're going to say amen to it. <clears throat> whenever corrupt speech is mentioned in the Bible, whenever it talks about cursing is a sin in the Bible, it is not talking about four-letter words. It's, if we reduce it to just four-letter words, we lose the emphasis of what's being said here. Now, now because four-letter words, first of all, I'm not exactly sure what four-letter words were in the Greek, but they may have been more than four letters. And I could actually make a very good biblical argument from Paul in the Greek text that Paul himself, to make major emphases, to make, to make major points, used what we would call four-letter words in the New Testament. I could also show you places in the Hebrew where the Hebrews considered some of the language that was used as cussing the way that we think of cussing. That's not what this is talking about. What it's talking about is speech that is not only corrupt within 
within sexuality, to, to crude joke within, in, in sexual ways. But it's also talking about speech, as other places tell us in the New Testament, that is worthless speech, speech that is not fitting to build someone up, but speech rather that tears someone down. When the Bible says don't curse, it's not talking about don't say those four-letter words. It's saying don't you dare say something about another human being that's negative because that human being has been made in the image of God. And whenever you speak negative to another person that's made in the image of God, you actually are not making fun of them. You're making fun of God himself. That's one of the reasons why I tell my kids, you can't say that to somebody. You, you can't tell per, that person that. There, there's places in the New Testament that say, be careful about calling someone a fool. Don't, do, don't do, judge lest you be judged likewise. All of that is language saying, listen, listen, as saints, you are not to beat up other saints. And scripture actually makes one of the most heaviest places when it talks about this, one of the most important places when it talks about this is about when it talks about, especially in the church, gossip. It tells us in scripture that gossip is damaging. Gossip ruins the church. Gossip can split a church in half. See, ultimately, corrupt speech is about forms of pride within speech. It's talking about speaking well of yourself. As, as, as Proverbs 27, 2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Or Pascal in the 1600s says, do you wish people to speak well of you? Then never speak well of yourself. Right? Part of, of corrupt speech is pride to talk of oneself. And that ties into gossip because the, the, the reason we gossip, if you look at the, the underlying reason why a church would gossip or why someone would gossip, is number one, it's entertainment for self. So it's about you. It's not benefiting someone else. And number two, it's to create a bond with another person by tearing down another person. Isn't that a horrible way to try to build a relationship? You and I can feel connected by talking trash about an outsider, and that's exactly what gossip does. It creates insiders and outsiders, and that should not be the case in God's kingdom. There's only insiders, right? All that we should be doing is talking well of one another. Now, what I like about the text, I didn't even really see this till this week, because I can read this, and I can read these verses and go, man, this is, this is heavy stuff. This is hard stuff. I've said that in the previous weeks as, as well. The, the, this is a difficult piece of scripture. But again, this is why we walk through the Bible. We can't avoid these kind of particular texts. Now, one of my major frustrations in Christianity, now, I, I share this time to time because I was, I was an outsider, that my parents became Christians, and then I became an insider. But even as a young man, most of the church treated me like an outsider. So I experienced what it was like to enter into a church as someone who didn't grow up in the church. And there was a kind of corrupt speech about me that existed. I, I didn't feel welcomed. I had parents literally tell their kids, stay away from him, right? And I've joked before, now I'm their pastor, it's great. <clears throat> Got him. <clears throat> and, and the reason I share this, as important as it is, is these things are negative and not good, but one of the things that drives me nuts within evangelical Christianity is that evangelical Christianity in our society today, by and large, is more known for what it hates than what it loves. That bothers me. Some of you would be more offended by someone using a four-letter word than to gossip about another saint. And we're coming up on an election season. And the question that I have to ask our congregation, because this is the shepherd, I have to shepherd the flock among me, I can only hold you accountable. Will you be known for what you love in the election cycle, or will you be known for what you hate? Because we can make a great argument, because it's right here. It's right here. We can make a great argument that we need to defend against those things which are evil and corrupt and not good. There is an argument for that, and we should be about that. However, the Bible actually spends more time talking about the things we should be doing in the positive light at least twice as much at least twice as much. There's one way to say, okay, look, we just read a few verses here on sexual immorality. 
it gives almost the rest of chapter five and elevates the goodness of marriage. We can talk negatively about what human sexuality is outside of marriage, but another way that we can do this is to elevate how beautiful marriage is and how awesome God has designed for a husband and a wife who normally wouldn't live or dwell together all that well without the gospel. And he's put us together in ways that challenge us to live by grace and to live by faith. We're not even there yet, but those of you who are aware of Ephesians 5, what is the commandment for men? Love your wife. What's the commandment to women? Respect your husband. I don't know if you know this or not, but women are far better at loving than men are. And so God calls men to live by faith and says, okay, do that which isn't always natural to you love. Women, you don't live in a world of respect, not like men do. Every male institution that's by and large a male institution, firefighters, military, all that, they all understand a hierarchy because men know how to just get in line, right? Men are this way. They walk into a room and they immediately line everybody up. I can beat him up. I can, oh, he could beat me up, (laughs) right? Men, am I wrong? There's a piece of us where it's like, yeah, I know who I could take and I know who not to take, and I'll just get in line, right? And yet God calls us to do that, which, which is harder because it, it requires faith. It requires grace. Now, the reason I share that is because these sins, which are made in emphasis, there is a verse that then, then ties us right into the positive and says, okay, listen, you don't live by pride. Don't live an idolatrous life. Don't live negatively. But then he says, instead, do what? Let there be thankfulness. Gratitude now becomes here, just so you know, all those other verses in in front, the negative ones, are all radical forms of pride. It's to live for self. And then he throws in there the most radical way to live through humility is to be is to be grateful. The the greatest form of humility is to have thankfulness, to be thankful for what God's given you. And I shared some of this last week, but I wanted to go even deeper in this because it it radically can transform your life. I mean this. First of all, gratitude is completely Trinitarian. Like the whole Trinity is involved. God the Father is the object of our thanksgiving. Jesus is, who is the son is the person whom thanksgiving flows. We're able to give God the Father our thanksgiving because we're hidden in Christ. This is where your sainthood comes from. The word in Christ is the number one term that's used for your identity in all of scripture. You are in Christ, you're one with Christ, you're in Christ, you're one with Christ. That's why you can stand before God and not be under wrath because you are now a child of God that is completely enveloped inside of the son. And so you can go to God and say, thank you for not destroying me because of my sin, because you're hidden in his son. And then the Holy Spirit is the source of thanksgiving. The Holy Spirit becomes a part of you and it gives you that peace of of understanding God and knowing who God is so that you can go to him in gratitude. And and just so you know, we have, I think it's in January or February, our our worship night that we do. Uh, We're gonna be, Pastor Wayne's gonna be teaching a class on Thursday nights in a couple months time when winter's here and we're all shoveling and all that fun stuff uh, on the Holy Spirit. And, and this, to me, I'm so excited about this because we need the Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just Father, Son, Holy Scriptures. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the thing that empowers us to live. The Holy Spirit is what allows us to hear God's voice. I heard someone tell me the other day, they said, I've never really heard the Lord speak to me. I thought, man, that's really sad. Because you have a, when you become a Christian, you have a union with Christ that includes the Spirit. And the Spirit leads and the Spirit guides and the Spirit convicts and the Spirit does amazing things. And so we need to be thankful that we have this object that is God the Father. We have the Son and the Spirit that empowers gratitude. Without the Spirit, there is no true thankfulness. We need more of the Holy Spirit. And Thanksgiving, ultimately, this is one of my favorite parts of this. Not only is it Trinitarian, but Thanksgiving, the way Paul has it written here, he says Thanksgiving literally replaces sin. If you want to get rid of sin in your life, because there's places in Scripture that say 
Colossians, for instance, I, I think I had it in my notes. I didn't read it or it's later on and I'm, I'm moving around. But Colossians actually tells us to put to death, to murder that which is earthly in us. That's the language. You, you put it to death. And one of the ways, this is what's so great. That sounds so violent, right? Like, like murder sin in your life. John Owen has a wonderful book on the mortification of sin. It's a great little book. If you get the abridged version, it's easier to read. I think we have some in the bookstore. But the, one of the ways, if not the major way that we mortify and kill sin in our lives is to replace that sin with being filled with gratitude. Now, what's really cool um, is not only does thankfulness replace sin, but thankfulness also allows us to truly enjoy all of God's creation the way that he intended. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. Everything created by God is good. Oh, say amen to that. There's a reason that, that God gave us taste buds and touch and senses of smell because everything that God has created is good. And he says, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So, so this is where like in our context, there's a way to ski and snowboard to the glory of God. Amen. <laughs> there is another, there's also a way to do that to the glory of self, right? It's, as long as it's unto the Lord, God gave you food to enjoy, to be pleasurable, right? My mom's gonna make me a lobster for my birthday. And I'm gonna eat that sucker to the glory of God, right? Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, he smoked cigars and he was challenged by other believers. They said, how can you smoke cigars? And he would just say, to the glory of God. And then someone said, well, don't you think that smoking cigars is wrong? And he said, only in excess. This is a true conversation. Only in excess. And then someone asked him, well, what is excess? He said, two or three at a time. <laughs> the point being here is where is your heart and your affection? I hope you can pick up on, and it's important, there is a difference in the way that we live if it's regarded to be legalistic and suffocating, and there's a way to live in true thanksgiving that liberates the Christian to truly enjoy, the, enjoy their life. Because Jesus truly is the source of your worship. Now, what's even more interesting, and you can Google this, you can look it up because it's gone viral, but the, there was a recent study that just was released by scientists, you know, the real experts in the world. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I gotta, I gotta be careful here. Very careful. Thank you, science. Because they now have confirmed what we've known for 2,000 years. Like literally, they, they've, they've done a study and they've realized the same neurons and the same things inside of your brain that control fear and anxiety are the same neurons and the same things in your brain, whatever they are, that control gratitude and the two cannot coexist at the same time. This is what God says. You, if you remember, right? Hey, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, what? Give thanks. Oh, it's like Jesus created your brain. He knows how it works. Right? And, and so we see here the solution to so much of what is what we would call mental health is to stop complaining, stop grumbling, stop gossiping, which is corrupt speech, but rather replace all things with gratitude towards God who is with us in our struggles, who is with us when all seems against us, and who will carry us through all of our trials and our tribulations. And those are all promises of God. God has promised to be with you, not distant from you. In the midst of your cancer, in the midst of your marriage that is struggling, in the midst of whatever addiction that you have, God has said, I will not leave you or forsake you. You are my saint. You are one of mine. You belong to me. And one of the things that we sometimes get wrapped up in is we think, we think inside of our minds that, well, if I come to Christ, everything's going to be awesome. Have you read the story of John the Baptist? Didn't go so well for John. But what is, if you live to 80 or 100 years, which I don't know if I want to get that far, but if you happen to get to 80, there's a, a man came to me today just so filled with gratitude. 87-year-old guy in the church today just said, Jesse, you have validated me and made me feel so special. Thank you. 87 years old, man. Just filled with gratitude. But if you get to 87, like he is, or 97, 
and your whole life just stinks, right? It's just been one trial after another, one fight after another, one hardship after another. Do you not remember what is 90 years compared to 10 million years in heaven? Can you not suffer for 90? Right, because what does he say? He says, those who live for today, that's what those verses in verses three on are basically saying. Those who are worshiping and idolaters, those who are doing such things and rude joking, and they're not filled with gratitude, he, he then says, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's the serious warning. If you live for the temporal of this world, if you live to gratify your flesh today, I, I, there's a gal in our church right now that, that she's struggling with her faith. And one of the reasons that she hasn't come totally to Christ is because she said, I'm not willing yet to give up the things of this world. This is literally what she's saying. I mean, she's forgetting. The things of this world perish. The things of this world will burn. Right? We have some people we know in Hawaii. They've lost everything. Like literally gone. No more. Now, when you have a particular kind of faith in God, you can lose everything because you know you already have everything. Everything in Christ. All of your comfort, all of your needs, all of the intimacy that you could ever know. You know Jesus totally knows you inside and out. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything about you, the good and the bad. And he has chosen this morning through me as his vessel to tell you that he loves you with all of his heart and to come to him and be embraced by his great forgiveness and, and, and goodness. And there should be nothing that holds you back from that. And then for you to walk out of this place this morning, this is my hope as the team comes up and sings for us, that as we walk out of this building this morning, we walk out not with heads high as, as those who are filled with pride, but heads held high. I'm a child of God. And if he is for me, who could be against me? Nobody. He's with you. Really good there, isn't it? Make me dance. Amen? Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray together and let's sing. Lord, I love the transformative language in verse 8. You share with us that we were darkness, but now we're light. We are saints. And next week, Lord, we will have that opportunity to see how that light plays out in pleasing you and walking with you. And I just ask this morning that your presence would be over this room as we sing and as we leave. Lord, your spirit doesn't just exist in this building. It exists in every single person here who calls you Father. And I pray they would walk in the power of that spirit as they leave here, Lord, that they would hear your truths, hear your conviction, Lord, that they would put off those things that are not fitting and proper for the saints. And that they would know in their heart of hearts that's who they are. Not because of what they've done, not because of their verified miracles or any of that kind of ridiculousness. But rather, Lord, because of who you've made them to be because of what you've done on the cross for them. And we trust you for that power because it truly is resurrection power. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Let's sing together, family. search the world but it couldn't fail me men's empty praise treasures of fame are never enough you came along and put me back together Every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing. Nothing is better than you. 
I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Cause you're the God of the mountain. He's the God of the valley. And there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. See now together, church. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing. Nothing is better than you. You turn morning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn dream to glory. You're the only one who can. You turn morning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. You're the only one who can. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing. Nothing is better than you. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. Last time. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. 